And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Oh, it's uh, it's been a busy week. Yeah. Busy time. But, you know, I'm alive and I'm here. <laughs> that's That's a low bar. It doesn't seem like the bar is low to me. Okay. How are you? Um, I'm theoretically fine. Everything's, everything's mostly good with me. I forgot to take my medication today. So in reality, I'm actually kind of a little all over the place, Mm. but like theoretically everything's fine. Nothing is actually wrong. Just my brain trying to convince me that things are wrong. Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, you know what we say to your brain? What? Booey. <laughs> well, folks, remember to take your meds on time. <laughs> That's all I got to say about that. Well, I am excited for today's movie. Yeah, it should be really interesting. Um, there's a lot of things that suggest it might be good. Ooh, even better. <laughs> <laughs> Today we are watching the very first Filipino horror film, Terror is a Man from 1959, directed by Gerardo de Leon and Eddie Romero. So how do we know this is the first horror movie from the Philippines? Besides the fact that we haven't covered a movie from the Philippines yet. Like, how do we know this is the first? Um, how do we know anything, Sarah? You the know internet? what I mean? <laughs> like, well, no, I just mean that like, I mean, so this is commonly said to be the first Filipino horror film. Okay. Um, There aren't any records that I can find of an earlier Filipino horror film. This movie is generally famous for being the first Filipino horror film. But of course, it's always kind of tricky to track down the first of anything. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're ever told something is the first of anything, there's like a decent chance that if you go digging further, you'll find like an earlier rendition that maybe counts or maybe doesn't because maybe it's just like a prototypical thing or whatever. The the point is, is that human history is long. The number of humans on the planet is very vast. There's always a chance that, I don't know, somebody took out a Super 8 camera in 1945 and filmed their brother in the Philippines running around with a Dracula cape on and maybe that counts, maybe it doesn't. You know what I mean? But like for, (laughs) for what is generally agreed upon... By most people, this is the first Filipino horror film. Okay. No, I just wanted to double check because based on the research I did, their film industry has been around for a bit. So just wanted to like make sure we we were accurate with what we were saying. This Yeah, no, no, for sure. For sure. Uh, I am not aware of any earlier Filipino horror films. Okay, cool. And if you look at, like, I'm sure the Blu-ray of this movie probably has something on it saying it's the first Filipino horror film. It's the main thing this is famous for. So really, if we're wrong, it's the marketing's fault. Yeah, sure. <laughs> or like any of the various historians who, uh, whose work I relied upon. Sure. 
So, as you just kind of mentioned, this is the first movie we're seeing in general from the Philippines. And you were just mentioning that the Filipino film industry kind of goes back a ways, which um, I actually don't know a lot about the Filipino film industry, um, particularly like before World War II. I do know that the Philippines has like kind of a messy history in the 20th century vis-a-vis its colonial status um and 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 you know went through a lot of turmoil during the various wars of the 20th century um by 1960 they were independent right uh with a very big asterisk okay do you want to maybe help our listeners learn a bit more about the philippines if they like me are not super sure what's going on sure So the Philippines are an archipelagic country. So basically a group of islands, um, but there's like over 7,000 islands. It's kind of bonkers. Um, If you're not quite sure where in the world it is, uh, the Philippines are north of Australia and Indonesia, east of Malaysia, Vietnam, Thailand, and south of China, Korea, and Japan, Mm -hmm. kind of southwest of Japan. There's a point to why I'm going so far back into history. But the earliest settlements in the Philippines were at ports, to the ocean. They were along major rivers. Uh, And I bring this up because trade and exchange has been a major aspect of Filipino culture for as long as anyone can remember. Gotcha. Both within the archipelago and outside of it with Many countries, many social groups, languages, religions, cultures. You have a mix of Islamic influences, Hindu influences, Buddhist influences. You have cultural and even like social or political influences from India, from China, from Japan. So it's already like a melting pot. Now, the first attempt at European colonization was in 1521 from the Spanish. They came to the Philippines, they tried to conquer, and they failed. The Filipino nation states, island states, banded together and like just murked the Spanish colonizers. Of course, at that point, they wouldn't be called Filipino yet. No, but that's just the easiest way to refer to sure, them. Sure, yeah, exactly. At this point in time. Yeah, for sure. No, I just wanted to... Be clear, but also, yeah, I get what you, I get. Why you're doing what you're doing. The second time the Spanish came around, it was successful. This would have been in 1565, and uh, the Philippines became known as the Spanish Philippines. And this introduced, you know, European sensibilities, but also an introduction of Catholicism. Mm-hmm. So they were a Spanish colony for about 300 years, over 300 years. And then in 1898, at the end of the Spanish-American War, uh, the Philippines, along with Guam and Puerto Rico, went to the Americans. I'm sure that'll work out fine. (laughs) Now, the first film uh, exhibition uh, in the Philippines was in 1897, so it's still technically under Spanish rule. But because by the next year, the Americans uh, took control of the Philippines, any kind of movie that came into the Philippines was 
predominantly American. Gotcha. Um, so at this time, you know, 1898-ish, we have silent movies. As far as movies being made in the Philippines, they would be made by, you know, a wealthy expatriate or a wealthy tourist who is making like a documentary about my time in the Philippines. Sure. To run the Philippines, uh, the U.S. put together uh, what they called the Philippine Commission. Um, So basically a group of people who would run the Philippines on their behalf. They were all American. Yeah, yeah. And the Philippine Commission was like, you know what? Movies and films, I think, are a great way to communicate and um, explain to people like what the Philippines are and like what we do over here, Hmm. Um, both in terms of like Filipino culture, but also like, you know, communicating propaganda to Filipinos uh, and maybe also using it as a like a way to get tourists here. Sure. So they bought a film unit to start producing things in the Philippines in uh, 1909. Okay. That's fairly early on. Um, yeah, right? Already by this time, um, studios from the continental U.S. were establishing distribution bases in Manila, the capital of the Philippines. Sure. Now, the first feature movie produced in the Philippines was 1912's La Vida de José Rizal by uh, director Edward Gross who I think we've seen on the show before. Mm-hmm. Funny enough, um, a second version of this movie was made to cash in on that movie and mm. came out the day prior. Right. But this was supposed to be like the Transformers to the other Transmorphers. Yeah. Um, so it's it's just funny, like at the very start of the Filipino film industry, you see some of this like cashing in. Right. Yeah. The same kind of knockoff behavior that we see throughout. Yeah a lot of uh, things that we've seen in the U.S. Mm-hmm. As we've covered in the podcast during this time uh, when we hit the time for World War One, movies out of Europe didn't really happen um, unless they were like propaganda or war movies. So that's when the U.S. film industry really dominated the market in the Philippines. And this meant that any Filipino films that were made like in the Philippines followed genres as defined by the U.S. market. Right. The first Filipino movie made in the Philippines by a Filipino was 1919's Dalagang Bukid, which translates to Country Maiden. It's based on a popular musical uh, and was made by filmmaker Jose Nepomucino, who is known as the father of Filipino film. Okay. So that's officially, I think, when you can say Filipino film industry is established, 1919. Got it. So 40 years before the making of this movie. Now, the Philippines are like, why do we got to listen to these Americans? This seems a little fishy. So in 1935, the Americans were like, okay, okay, cool. Don't worry. Don't worry, Filipinos. We will come up with a 10-year plan. And by the end of this 10-year plan, you'll have your independence. We just want to make sure that you have everything you need. You can stand on your, on your own two feet. And the Philippines were like, great. Um, and then World War II happened. Right. 
and uh, the Philippines became occupied by Japan in 1942. This lasted until the end of the war in 1945, uh, when the Philippines were like, hey, USA, what about that independence thing? And so by 1946, the Treaty of Manila was signed, which meant an independent Philippines, the Philippines Republic, with a giant asterisk attached to it. Because the U.S. was like, cool, 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 we'll give you your independence, but can we, like, keep some, like, military bases here? Yeah, that makes sense. Like, can we do that? And the Philippines are like, uh, okay. And then the U.S. was like, mm, but, like, we want to make sure that your economy is stable, and I think in order for you to do that, you need to make sure that you have, like, American products. So can you introduce quotas to protect American products from being, like, competed with, with, like, other products? And the Philippines are like, mm, what if the product is made here, though? And the U.S. is like, no, just no competition with American products. The Philippines are like, ugh, fine. And then the Americans are like, cool, thank you, really appreciate it. Just one more thing, just one more thing. Um, we want to introduce this thing called the uh, the Bell Trade Act, uh, where the U.S. still has equal access to your natural resources. And the Philippines are like, no, that's no. And the U.S. are like, mm, but your independence, though, you'll get like your own legislature, you'll have your own president, your own elections. If you need our Supreme Court, they're at the ready, but y you know, you don't have to use it. It's there if you want it. Uh, I think that's pretty generous. And the Philippines were like, fuck, fine. So they are independent, but the U.S. still has them under their heel. Sure, like how Canada was independent <laughs> of Britain. For yes. so many years. For so many years and continues. Yeah. How apt we are recording this on the coronation weekend. Yeah, sure. Now, post-World War II, post-independent, we see a golden age for the Philippines in terms of their economy, similar to the trend that we see worldwide. And this golden age is particularly characterized and associated with um, President Ramon Magsaysay, being elected in 1953. He was very anti-communist, anti-Leninist, so, you know, the Americans loved him. Mm. Uh, and he was very, like, focused on policies that would improve their economy. Right. Related to this is when we see a boom and golden age for their film industry. We see four main studios kind of pop up during this time. Uh, LVN Pictures, which was uh, kind of analogous to like MGM. Hmm. So very prestige. They had the big name celebrities. Um, they weren't pumping out as many movies as Sempaguida Pictures, who kind of did any and every genre. There were premiere productions, uh, which mainly focused on action and then LeBron International. The films that were typically made during this time, they would be dramas, they would be play adaptations, war musicals. Right. Like war and musicals and war musicals. Gotcha. Um, and action movies. And 
as an industry, they pumped out about 350 films a year. That is a country that doesn't have a lot of television yet, is what that sounds like. Absolutely. They are really focused on not only making movies, but making movies that are are made by Filipinos. During this time, they have their own celebrities. They have their own like big name directors, the Christopher Nolans, uh, such as the uh, two directors that who made this film. The end of the Filipino golden age uh, for the economy is usually considered to be the end of Magsaysay's um, tenure as president, uh, likely because it ended in tragedy. He died by a plane crash. Mm. So um, a politician named Carlos Garcia assumed the presidency and then was later elected. His presidency was focused very much on a um, Filipino first policy uh, where he p- was pushing a lot against the lease renewals of U.S. military bases, a lot of economic policies that favored specifically Filipino trade. And it's not like things crashed and burned. And that was the end of the golden age. It was just like under McSaysa, everything was great. Under Garcia, mm, got it. It's okay. When did that happen? Uh, 1957. Gotcha. You know, we still have a lot of um, movies being made. And this is, of course, a, a studio system, very much alike to the old Hollywood studio system. But by 1959, that studio system was having a lot of difficulties with conflicts between labor and management, mm. which led to kind of a, a push for more independent stars contracts versus a salary wage very similar to the trend that we see in the u.s as they move away from a studio system as far as what the culture is like as we head into this 1959 movie it is a very very diverse culture in all of their art literature everything is very diverse with mixes of spanish southeast asian catholic and buddhist kind of influences Um, If something is going to be based off of folklore, then we get back to, uh, for lack of a better word, like indigenous Filipino folklore, um, rather than transplanting like Spanish folklore. But it's a melting pot, I think, is is a, a great way to think about the Philippines. That international influence continues in even into the 1960s. The Philippines would see a lot of like knockoff versions of big movies and franchises like James Bond, very similar to what we see from other countries trying to like create their own version of these big franchises from the UK or the US. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the Philippines and their film industry. Gotcha. Yeah, the Philippines as kind of like a, a melting pot reminds me of this thing I read once about how like originally the word filipino just meant spanish people from the philippines Mm. but like eventually because there were the spaniards and there was like multiple different sort of indigenous ethnicities and as time went on they were becoming like increasingly mixed like filipino just became the easiest way to talk about everybody essentially yeah i think you can see that really clearly with uh language so Outside of the Philippines, we might say that um, 
they speak Filipino uh, as like their language. But that doesn't actually exist. It would be the same as saying like, oh, that person is speaking Chinese when like Chinese as a language doesn't exist. Right. Um, The national language I think you would be able to say is Tagalog. Mm -hmm. But even then, only like 30-ish percent of Filipinos speak that as their first language. Mm. There are a whole swath of other Filipino languages, but then Spanish takes up a huge percentage of that language melting pot sure so it's it's a little bit of everything (laughs) gotcha well terrorism man um the film we're watching today comes sort of from a place of american influence and american money Mm -hmm. uh the producer of the film is kane w lynn who was an american born in 1919 and he was a u.s navy pilot who was stationed in the philippines during world war ii And after the end of the war, he decided to, like, live in the Philippines. He worked for the Navy as a technical advisor on a TV show shot in the Philippines called Navy Log. And while making that show, he met and befriended Filipino filmmaker Eddie Romero. Eddie Romero was born in 1924. He was the son of the first Filipino ambassador to the United Kingdom. He was the nephew of the Filipino signatory to the United Nations Charter. He was the brother of the first Filipino ambassador to Italy. (laughs) Uh, So his parents were very disappointed when he went into entertainment instead (laughs) of ambassadorship. Yeah. Um, His film career began as a writer in 1941. And by 1947, he was directing as well. He won Best Director at the Maria Clara Awards in 1951. He won Best Screenplay at the Maria Clara Awards in 1952. And then he also won Best Screenplay at the Filipino Academy Awards in 1953. After meeting Kane Lynn in 1955, the two began collaborating to create Filipino movies that they thought could break into the American market. Mm-hmm. Um, These were mostly like war movies and crime movies at first. Uh, Worried that these movies weren't doing well enough, you know, weren't having that success. Lynn paid to have international actors brought into the Philippines to appear in them. Similar to what we saw like Hammer do in the 50s or like Toho. Basically, Lynn and Romero decided to make a horror movie as a way to break into the international market. They're making it for the same reason all the other independent filmmakers are making horror movies, which is that they are cheap and easy to make. But if you do it good, you can have a big return on investment. Mm -hmm. Lynn and Romero brought on Texan writer Paul Harbour, who had written their 1958 movie, The Kidnappers, to write a story inspired by the island of Dr. Moreau. Oh, interesting. How long has it been since... We saw Island of Lost Souls. Island of Lost Souls was 1932. Okay. So it's been almost 30 years. Uh, And that movie at this point in time would still basically be banned. Yeah. Um, So I think it's a fair thing to say that no one will remember specifics enough (laughs) to be like giving direct comparisons. Yeah. um, They don't actually credit H.G. Wells. On the film, they don't say it's based on Island of Dr. Moreau, <laughs> but it's the same premise, right? Yeah. In the same way that, like, 
there's a lot of stuff that's just ripping off Island of Dr. Moreau, right? But that's what happens when it's public domain. You don't need to credit people. Um, <laughs> For the record, um, Island of Lost Souls was covered in episode 36. Oh, my God. And we are currently episode 286. Woof. Uh, and it is currently ranked at number 11. Yeah, it's a good movie. Yeah. Um, yeah, it wasn't really banned, but after the production code was enforced in 1934, just so much of it had to be cut out that it was basically not watchable. Mm -hmm. So no one re-released it. Anyways, Romero decided to collaborate with Filipino filmmaker Gerardo de Leon to direct the picture. I believe de Leon is the credited director, but Romero directed many sequences, um, but Romero is credited as a producer. Now, Gerardo de Leon was born Gerardo Ilagan in 1913, and his original profession was as a medical doctor. Oh. But he loved movies so much that he decided to become an actor in 1934. He appeared in eight films before transitioning to become a director, and he ended up marrying the star actress of his directorial debut. Oh, wow. During the Second World War, De Leon made anti-American propaganda films for the Japanese. Yeah, um, during the occupation, a lot of the film production equipment and any kind of assets were used by the Japanese to make Japanese movies, mm -hmm. but there were two feature films made in the Philippines during that time uh, that are war propaganda. Mm -hmm. Now, when the Japanese were defeated, De Leon was charged with treason, uh, and he would have been executed by the Filipino government uh, if it was not for the discovery of evidence showing that he had been aiding the Filipino resistance the entire time. Nice. In 1952 and 1958, he won Best Picture and Best Director at the Filipino Academy Awards, and he was often called Manong by those in the film community, which is an Ilocano term for the firstborn male in a family, but which is also used as a term of like affection and respect for an older man than yourself, um, like calling someone big brother. Yeah. There is a lot more that I could say about Kane Lynn and Eddie Romero and Gerardo de Leon, all of whom would go on to like very prestigious careers. Um, Eddie Romero was eventually named National Artist of the Philippines in 2003. Gerardo de Leon is the most awarded director in the Filipino film industry. Every time he won Best Director, he also won Best Picture, and he did that seven times in total. Wow. Um, but... Terror is a Man is not the last film from them we will be seeing. So I can talk more about their coming success in future episodes. I am very much looking forward to it. Yeah. So as I mentioned, Kane Lynn was importing stars from outside the Philippines to come star in these movies. So the star of our movie here, the Dr. Moreau analog character, is played by Francis Letterer who we enjoyed in Return of Dracula from 1958. Mm -hmm. This would actually be his final film role, uh, though he would continue to act on television over the next 10 years. And then after retiring from acting, he stayed working 
Um, he was the Recreation and Parks Commissioner for Los Angeles, and he had many other like activism projects. Um, he did stuff for UNICEF. He was one of the co-founders of the American National Academy of Performing Arts in LA and the International Academy of Performing Arts in Washington, and so on and so on. Just like lots of these kind of civic activist kind of projects Mm -hmm. uh, until he passed away at age 100 in 2000. Wow. The movie's female lead, who is the like wife of the Dr. Moreau analog character, is played by Greta Tusson, who was born in Denmark in 1927. She won Miss Denmark in 1951 and basically tried to parlay that into coming to the United States with the hope of being the next Marilyn Monroe. Sure. She got into some legal trouble because she just sort of came to the United States and was like, oh yeah, like I'm here visiting and then started trying to like get work and then just kind of like stayed there. And she was only on like a visitor's visa. Yeah. You, don't, don't fuck around with that shit. So they deported her in 1953, but it was all cleared up. Um, and after two marriages to U.S. citizens in the course of three years, uh, Tucson had her film debut as Marilyn Monroe's body double in the movie Bus Stop in 1956. She appeared in four more feature films over the next three years, actually like appearing in roles. Yeah. Um, as well as three Three Stooges shorts um, that she's quite well known for and a number of television appearances. While shooting Terror is a Man, she was married to her third husband, and after making four more feature films, she would retire from acting soon after marrying her fourth husband. And she passed away at age 90 in 2018. Also in the cast is American character actor Richard Durr, uh, who plays kind of the, like, the shipwrecked guy role. He's perhaps best known to genre fans for his appearance in When Worlds Collide back Mm -hmm. in 1951. The film was shot by Emmanuel Rojas and edited by Hervecio Santos, who was generally considered the best editor in the Philippines during his career and would serve as the president of the Film Editors Guild of the Philippines in the 1970s and 80s. So I know that they're just making this movie to kind of like cash in, try to break into the American market. Yeah. But all of this, you know, budget aside, it sounds like this is going to be an A picture. Like, with the amount of effort going in. It's not from any of the studios. Okay. This is like an indie picture from, like, a couple of guys scraping together some money. It's just that they're all the most talented people in the country. Okay. Um, I did want to say Hervecio Santos uh, is now retired and lives in Toronto with his family. Oh, Toronto. Terror is a Man was released on December 12th, 1959 on a double feature with Eddie Romero and Kane Lynn's crime movie, The Scavengers. It was re-released over the next few years under many different titles in many different territories. So other titles you might know this movie under could be Creature from Blood Island, Gore Creature, The Gory Creatures, Island of Terror, and most notably as Blood Creature, which was the title it was re-released under ahead of the release of its three sequels 10 years later. Okay. So they kind of made like the second, third, and fourth movies all between 1968 and 1971. And so they re-released this as Blood Creature like right before they started releasing those to kind of remind people 
of like the first movie, essentially. But that also bodes really well for this movie. Oh, yeah. Um, This movie did really well at the box office. It was a big success. Um, It did have a William Castle style promotional gimmick. Of course. Um, A bell chimes before a gruesome scene in order to warn the squeamish to look away. I don't think that's as good a gimmick as they hoped. I don't know. I don't know, man. Uh, Over the years, this movie has been subject to a lot of critical acclaim. It is often called the first and best Filipino horror movie. Okay. It was released um, on Blu-ray by Severin Films in 2018, both by itself and with its sequels in the Blood Island collection. Okay. Well, folks, if you want to watch along, hopefully you can find a copy of one of those collections. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Terror is a Man from 1959, directed by Gerardo de Leon and Eddie Romero. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Terror is a Man from 1959, directed by Gerardo de Leon and Eddie Romero. Ben, first thoughts? So I liked this, but I think I liked it on like an intellectual level more than on like a gut level. Yeah. Like I respected this more than I liked it. I would agree. Hmm. I think that this is a fairly good movie. Um, It feels like a book adaptation. Interesting. Because of its slower pace. I was thinking like a play, but I get where you're coming from. Yeah. Yeah. You could also get a play from this um, little bottle episode. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, I I don't know. I think it was fairly well done. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let me run through what happens but it's basically dr moreau's island on like a smaller scale definitely when the film starts uh we see william fitzgerald washing ashore in a lifeboat and he is found by dr charles gerard and his assistant walter Pereira, as they are out tracking some kind of animal Later, Fitzgerald awakes and he learns that he is the lone survivor of um, a capsized freighter. And uh, he overhears how Gerard and Walter are setting a trap for some kind of beast. That night, we see a panther-like man-beast attack and kill two villagers. So the next morning, the entire village is like, GTFO, (laughs) they leave on the boats uh, with only two people left behind, the brother and sister, Tiago and Celine, who also happen to be servants at um, Gerard's Manor. Now, Fitzgerald here also meets Mrs. Frances Gerard, who is a nurse and assists her husband, but also is very tired of being on this island. They've been here for two years. She's had enough of these experiments of being on this island, etc., 
a mix of like, you know, being tired of being here, but also very tired from the work and the impact on her well-being. Now we see that this beast is caught and uh, as it's brought down into the lab and um, some checkups are done on it, Fitzgerald snoops around and he sees that it's some kind of man beast who is covered in bandages, but you can still see the eyes, um, kind of whiskers and ears. So you can tell that it used to be a panther. Now the next boat for like supplies and everything to this island is not for like another three months. So Fitzgerald starts to learn more about the island, about Gerard's work, and also about Francis. She, as I said, wants to leave and um, asks for Fitzgerald's help. Eventually we see Fitzgerald is in love. Francis is inconvenience. So not in love? You're giving me a very curious look. She's fucking him out of convenience. Ah, okay. I think because you use the words in convenience and together those make the word inconvenience. I wasn't sure what you were saying. Oh, I tried to give a space, but that's okay. Yeah. No worries. As long as we're clear now. Yeah. Francis wants to get some, but she's not like head over heels in love with this guy. I, I got the feeling she's kind of like seducing him a little bit in order to get his help getting her off this island. Yeah, but she's also like not manipulating him no yeah just to be clear she's not like a film noir dame no no she's just a like i don't know wife from a tennessee williams play or something absolutely walter knows that fitzgerald and francis have slept together um and he is not the best person himself um he goes after celine and off-screen assaults her, rapes her. Um, and he attempts to do that with Francis, but it's down in the lab when he's trying to do that. And the, the creature kind of gets sort of free as like, he's like very upset about this attack on Francis. And so Francis gets away and Walter then beats the creature. Um, maybe his middle name is Fritz. <laughs> the creature has kind of like, an unstated yet sort of implied by genre convention interest in Francis. Yes. Now Fitzgerald learns about Gerard's like theory and everything. It's basically about evolution and rather than letting it take place over like decades to centuries to whatever, um, he's like speeding it up and he wants to create like the perfect man who is free of emotion, is completely objective and logical. He's not distracted by the instincts that um, Homo sapien man has, which is, is like, there's a fatal flaw in here, my guy. You're experimenting on animals. Yeah, it's like, it's like okay, so like he, he wants to make the perfect race, right? And it's like, oh, that's a little, like, cringe a little bit right but it's like oh no but he doesn't want to do it with like eugenics and like selective breeding and stuff and it's like oh okay that's good and it's like oh wait but you want to create the perfect logical man from animals that doesn't really make sense it feels like it would be easier to do it from 
people. So, you know, there's a little <laughs> little mix of pros and cons going on here. You're like... Lots of cons. <laughs> lots of cons. Um, and it's very clear that, like, Gerard believes himself to be sane. He doesn't have any um, insane behaviors, but he believes in this so wholeheartedly that... He's a, he's a little insane. He doesn't care about the lives of other people. And he goes out of his way to be like, figuring out the morals of my work is for other people to do. But on the other hand, he doesn't have any of the like sadistic God complex um, behaviors of like Dr. Moreau in Island of Lost Souls. Yeah. Now, post-surgery, the most recent surgery on the beast, which was like on the throat to basically allow him to be able to speak and speak English. He escapes. And uh, as the beast has escaped, he kills Walter. Um, he ends up killing Celine and ends up kidnapping Francis. Now Celine's brother, Diego is um, somewhere out in the forest. I think it's safe to assume that he's dead at this point. Fitzgerald and Gerard managed to track the beast and, Gerard confronts the beast and gets the beast to like, you know, put down Francis and like, come with me. Like, we'll get this sorted out. And then he gets clawed in the face and then thrown off a cliff. So he's dead. And seeing this attack, Fitzgerald shoots the beast with uh, many a bullet. And the beast then like runs off and is off injured. We see that Diego approaches the beast and is like you know how like when a, a little kid approaches like a lost dog similar vibes um and helps the beast get onto a rowboat and kind of puts him out to sea meanwhile francis and fitzgerald are like well <laughs> we just went through that and that's the end now, Ben, at the beginning, you said that there was like a, a gimmick of like a bell ringing. So that happens during the surgery on the larynx. And it's basically bookending a shot of someone cutting into a person like the the shot of the surgery incision. It's a live pig mm. is what it actually is. Uh, close up on meant to you know make you think it's the the panther man yeah so that was uh not what i was expecting but it's also like not as bad as you think it might be mm. yeah so what what did you think of this movie where, where would you like to start well so for one thing for all the like wannabe moros out there who are trying to change animals in demand via surgery and surgical techniques, which is still what we're kind of doing here. There are injections of like a synthetic glandular thing that's meant to like change the brain as well as the body, which I thought was like an interesting mm -hmm. addition to the lore, I guess, if you want to <laughs> call it that, where it's like... Well, like bridging the existing gland lore in mm -hmm. horror movies into... Moreau's uh, surgical changes. Yeah, but also kind of like acknowledging that like if you did a bunch of like Ship of Theseus style surgeries <laughs> to like a panther to make it into a man, like that's not going to 
give it a man's reason capabilities, right? Yeah. So like, I liked that. However, if your plan is to create man out of animal, why do these guys always start with panthers? I mean, I get that it's so for like, in a horror movie sense, it's got like claws and fangs and is like a, you know, violent predator. But like, do a chimpanzee or a gorilla or something like start closer, oh, you know? No, no, I am so glad it was a panther. If it was another fucking gorilla, <laughs> Benjamin, we have had so many fucking gorillas. I will say that, um, so this movie is well shot. It's well edited. I think it's well directed. I think it's well written. I think it's well acted. It's a nice little movie. It's biggest flaw is that not enough happens, which yeah. makes it slower than I would like, um, which is why I say I respect it more than I like it. Yeah, I think uh, I completely agree. There's a lot of like moving camera, depth of field, shadow, framing. Everyone making this movie is clearly very skilled. And I also noted the editing, mm -hmm. um, that it was very well done. You feel kind of trapped here, which I think is where you get that play feeling. Mm -hmm. um, and it has a slower pace, which I, <laughs> yeah, also respected. But I felt like it needed a bit more energy when it got to the climax. So the thing about the movie is that it's very intelligent and reasonable in my mind. And what gives it that play quality as well is it's kind of got that like Star Trek appeal where they're not able to afford a lot actually happening, which leads to a lot of good dialogue scenes about the issues at hand. Like this is a movie where people talk about like the philosophy behind what's happening or like, you know, explain your methods to me or, or whatever, all the character relationships. And it was interesting seeing a version of this story where all the characters act more recognizably like human beings like the scientist isn't so obviously mad right mm -hmm. like he's even at by the end like gerard is not cackling he's not trying to kill the other humans on the island or anything he just like legit thinks this is a good idea like if there's anything sort of crazy about him it's just that he thinks that making panthers into people is a good idea but the rest of how he goes about it like he can explain what he's doing intelligently and it he sounds like a reasonable person yeah i think francis letterer is a very good moreau analog personally i believe that he is playing the character as fully sane mm -hmm. and his it's his belief that is a little fanatic and i thought it was so interesting how he has this goal and he also emulates this goal of objective truth and being fully logical and that being mirrored with Walter who hmm. talks a lot about emotion and has this like little short monologue about like whenever it rains you can feel tensions rising and he's just like very emotional in the sense of like giving voice to certain emotions calling out when emotions are running high, but then also embodies a lot of those like emotional instinctual urges um, in his activities. Yeah. He's violent. <laughs> he's sexual. Whereas the doctor, like 
is like Gerard doesn't want his wife to leave, but his wife can't really get a straight answer out of him as to whether that's because Gerard would lose a nurse or whether Gerard would lose a wife or whether it's just more important to Gerard to have someone around to talk to, to talk to. Um, because it doesn't seem to upset Gerard all that much that like his wife is probably fucking another guy on the side. Like Gerard doesn't seem to have a lot of that passion. Um, he tries to kind of engage with her like that at one point in the movie and she kind of brushes him off and tells him that that seems cheap coming from him on the flip side you know, not only is Gerard more reasonable and comes across more like a human being, but so does Fitzgerald in that as the protagonist, he's not so pig-headedly antagonistic towards Gerard, right? So like in Island of Lost Souls, our lead character is, you know... Square-jawed. Square-jawed to the point where like, you know, at the first sign of like, stuff being fucked up he's like you're mad moreau like i want off this island like you're crazy i don't like any of this and you know once he figures out that moreau's trying to like hook him up with the panther lady he's like absolutely not whereas fitzgerald you know is kind of like oh i'm trapped on this island with this like super hot babe who clearly is having trouble with her marriage maybe i can like get in on that and he doesn't come across as like sleazy he comes across as i'm gonna say he comes across as human uh like it's i'm not trying to like you know (laughs) glamorize or like justify like adultery or anything but it's just that like he comes across as like a person with desires and flaws and flaws he also comes across as like a neutral party very well even as he embodies these things yes and has been thrown into this mix yes because Fitzgerald like it's clear that like Fitzgerald understands that what Gerard is doing is wrong and he wants to help out Francis but he's not going to be talking to Gerard and being like you're mad Gerard I'm taking your wife away from here so that Gerard can like be like ah you'll never get away and like put him in a cage or something instead like he just lets Gerard talk and has conversations with him and is like yeah this seems really interesting let me take a look at what you're doing and because if you were actually the guest of this person on his island and there's nowhere for you to go and no way to escape like why would you purposefully antagonize right so these people just seem a lot more human um a lot less like mustache twirling villains or square jawed heroes or femme fatale seductresses also Having only one creature that has taken many years to create, not only budget-friendly, but also a lot more believable than Moreau's, like, island of monsters that has, like, their own, like, culture and religion that he's somehow developed in, you know, a dozen years or so. Yeah, I completely agree. I feel like this is a more believable approach to the source material, I will say I definitely agree with what you're saying about Richard Dare, and I think I'm going to try to make a distinction here. His mm. physical acting is good. You can tell that physically he's acting and is communicating what the character is feeling very well, but his voice is so wooden as announcer 
it, it just was a little distracting how his voice was very uh, one note. Hmm. So here's what I think about this, because I do think you're on to something, um, but I don't necessarily think the performance is wooden. I think what's going on here is that like Gerardo de Leon and Eddie Romero, you know, these guys clearly are very talented directors. Yes. And it's almost like they are directing these characters, these actors, I should say, to portray their characters very naturalistically to the point where we don't have the kind of like histrionics that we're used to in a horror movie which makes them come off a little flat, but I don't actually think it's wooden. I think it's just that like this acting would seem fine in a drama, but in the context of a horror movie, it feels a little flat because it's just a little too understated. That's how I feel about Greta Thyssen as well. Um, I honestly felt like she wasn't that good, Um, at least out of our main four people. I think she's the weakest. Potentially, but I think she's doing a really good job as the, like I said, Tennessee Williams play wife that she is written as. But it's just a little hard to sort of square that circle with the horror movie stuff going on around her because the way that she's dissatisfied with her husband comes off more as like, you know kind of this like bored wife who would rather be partying in Manhattan as opposed to woman horrified by the abuses of nature happening around her kind of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. She is like the only person who is showing pity Mm -hmm. for the creature. And yeah, I, I would even say that like, it's not so much she wants to go partying, but it's, like wanting to go back to when life wasn't so complicated. Sure. Like a, a wanting to go back to like that naivety of when she was partying. Yeah. But she's got this very like disaffected wife kind of thing that sometimes means that she doesn't seem as intense as you might expect from like someone who's freaking out about like abuses of nature and stuff like that. In terms of like the way that this movie's a little slow and a little low key. I think this movie is almost harmed more if you've already seen Island of Lost Souls because that one has so much energy. Yes. While I think this is a more realistic take on the story and it's very intelligently done. And I think that one creature is more believable than an Island full. Once you've seen an Island full, one creature is also like less horrific. It's less exciting. You know what I mean? So it, it, feels a little like almost nothing's happening. Whereas I think if this was your first exposure to the story, maybe you wouldn't feel that way. But like for me, it was sitting there going like, yeah, okay. Like this creature's going to get loose and cause some violence eventually. So can we like get get, to the fireworks factory? Yeah, get to the fireworks factory. Um, But I actually do think this has a really good horror movie climax. I know you were saying you didn't quite like the ending as much. I just wanted a little bit more energy to it. That's fair. That's totally fair. What I liked about it and, and really thought was good was like 
the thing of like, it's dark, it's nighttime, it's raining, it's a storm, the creature gets away, the boys go after it, but it turns out the creature's just like turned right around and is in the house, like with the women while the boys are out and like stalking them through the house and stuff like that's good horror movie shit. Yeah, I was very appreciative of the fact that we stuck with the women Mm -hmm. rather than like trekking through the wilderness, Um, particularly after Celine dies and we're just with not Blanche. What the fuck is her name? (laughs) Francis. Francis. Um, And we're just with Francis as she's searching through the house for Celine. Um, That felt fresh. Yeah, that felt really good. It felt like, you know looking forward to where horror movies are going the whole movie has really good atmosphere and cinematography but i really liked the way they got the interiors of the house to look at night with the rain um it is a little bit harmed again by that more realistic style of acting in the sense that like the first few times that Frances sees the monster coming at her, she kind of like does this deer in the headlights, like freeze thing where she's got her mouth open a gate, but she's not making any sound. Like, you know, she's just frozen and then she'll like run away. Eventually she lets out a pretty good scream. But I feel like if you're, you know, the horror movie junkie, like you want that scream and maybe it's more realistic to do the deer in the headlights thing. But I think you have a very good point about the way that some of those less realistic choices, more heightened choices, more genre tropey choices up the energy in scenes like this. Also the way that she runs um, (laughs) with her outfits, like it's just a a fact of the outfits that Mm -hmm. she's in, but it's like, there's no way you can run fast in those. So she's just like waddling as fast as she can. And so again, it just doesn't feel like it has the energy yeah, to be clear, uh, Greta Tucson has a very hourglass figure. This movie will not let you be unaware of that. It puts her in all kinds of sexy outfits, including like a lot of lingerie um, that felt very like kind of daring and sexy. Um, but yes, she's in a lot of like pencil skirt, cinched waist kind yeah. of dresses. There's no way you can run in those right. unless you're like tearing those. Yeah. Because we only have one monster, I think they did a pretty cool job on the makeup. I would agree. I appreciated that um, they did this neat thing of like it's covered in bandages. Mm -hmm. And so you get a reveal of like something's there and its size and you get a little bit of like seeing the damage. And then when it's time for the climax, um, he's been hit with fire because of course, and so they are removing some of the bandages. So then it's even more of a reveal and more of his face. I thought that was a neat way to handle having your cake and eating it too. Yeah. And you know, they don't have to make the whole body of the creature, but I thought the head that they made actually was a really good attempt at like a half Panther, half man kind of look. It had like, almost kind of, you know, like a more modern prosthetics kind of look to it than the paper mache ass shit that I've been getting used to in these movies lately. Yeah, that's just Bud Westmore. He doesn't know what the fuck he's doing, Ben. <laughs> um, is there anything else you'd like to say? Or No, I think that basically covered it. I think this is a really good movie. I think it's worth checking out. I think it's very respectable. Yeah. So let's move on to ranking. I think the obvious starting point is Island of Lost Souls. 
which as I said is ranked at number 11. While I like this more realistic approach to the source material, its lack of energy hampers it as a horror movie. So I was looking below. Yeah, this might be in some ways like a better drama or a better science fiction movie than Mm. Island Muscles perhaps, but it's not a better horror movie. So I totally agree that we're looking below this. And as I worked my way down the list... My eyes came to Murders in the Zoo at 27. Interesting. And that movie has a lot of energy, but it's also really not realistic at all. (laughs) Um, And I think comparing Lionel Atwill's performance of someone who is not in their right head Mm -hmm. and how that translates to his marital relationship and comparing how we see that in terror is a man, even with just the theme of like, it's the men who are the terror in this movie. If that was not fucking clear, I'm spelling it out. I I do. I did want to actually hit on that title because like there are, I think two ways to interpret the title. One is the terror is Dr. Gerard, not the monster he's created. The other is they keep raising the question in the movie of like, is the creature beast or man? And so I think the other way of interpreting the title is the movie coming down and being like, no, he is a man. Yeah. Um, Because otherwise the movie would be titled, Is Terror a Man? (laughs) (laughs) So I made Murders in the Zoo my floor. Interesting. And as I was, you know, reflecting on the movies in here, I actually came upon a spot. Okay. Above Murders in the Zoo is Macabre from Castle. Right. This movie has a uh, a Roger Corman vibe because of that drama rather than Castle's like gimmick energy thing. Yes. Um, above that is House on Haunted Hill, another Castle classic, and then Night of the Demon. Mm-hmm. I don't think that Terror is a Man can go above Night of the Demon, even just in like scope and accomplishment of everything. But House on Haunted Hill thinking about the relationship between the two married couples, I think is done better in House on Haunted Hill because it's allowed to have a lot of that energy, but also like explicit loathing. Mm. But I think it's worth going above macabre. So my spot was 26. Yeah, that explicit loathing is interesting because the kind of like quiet, like this marriage has just kind of broken down energy in this film certainly feels more real, but like the hatefulness that Vincent Price has for his wife and her back to him in that movie does make them more entertaining to watch in a way because it's more dramatic, right? Yeah. So you're looking way higher than me, I'm just going to say. Interesting. Okay. Um, so I didn't really know where to look. Obviously, I looked at Moreau first and I said no this is not going that high so then I looked at where Return of Dracula is our other Francis Letterer movie and that's down at number 78 and I was looking at stuff around there like Horrors of the Black Museum and The Tingler and I was like I think we can go a little higher than this and I looked my way up the list until I hit stuff like The Screaming Skull at 55 and then White Reindeer at 54 and the uninvited at 53 and seventh victim at 52 and vampire at 51. And I was thinking 
maybe this wasn't better than those movies. So my range was actually 55 to 76 down in this section. I think, like, I see where you're going. And part of what is challenging for me is I really feel like this script for Terror is a Man is very intelligent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's bringing in its themes and um, the horror of its themes into its very DNA. Sure. Sculpting it almost to be (laughs) a man. No. (laughs) Um, So... I think this brings up a a bit of an interesting question, which is on scream scene here, do we grade on a curve? Because like a lot of my respect for this movie also comes from like, it's the first, it's the first Filipino horror movie. It's not being made with a lot of money. You know, it's coming out of the Philippines. I've never like seen a 1950s Filipino movie before. I had no idea really what to expect. And you know, to be honest, my expectations were low. Even hearing that it was made by like some of the best Filipino filmmakers, that raised my expectations, absolutely. But I was still kind of expecting something Roger Corman-y. Mm-hmm. And I actually think it's interesting that you brought up the kind of like vibe similarity because this does have a Roger Corman vibe to it. But like again, the filmmaking is on this like much more talented level i think and so you know do we give this movie extra points for being so good for what it is as opposed to like as uh dr gerard might say like how objectively good it is right i i i hesitate to answer this question Mm. but ultimately it is very clear, and we've been clear from the beginning, that this is not an objective list. Right. We frequently grade on a bell curve. We have sections of the list that are like, this is good, but... And sections of the list that are like, yeah, but you unintentionally hit onto a social theme, so I <laughs> guess you're a little better than we thought. Right. Like, at no point did we give the impression that this was objective. Yeah, no, for sure. So I kind of see that this should go above Murders in the Zoo. Even though below Murders in the Zoo, we have things like Fairman Maria and a bunch of other really good movies, actually, under Murders in the Zoo. I'm not sure if this should go above Macabre, but it definitely below House on Hyatt Hill, for sure. Like I said, you know, I was looking much lower than this. Um, You know, and I'm looking at things like, should this go above Night of the Hunter or... Creature from the Black Lagoon or Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. This did have Creature from the Black Lagoon and 1931 Frankenstein vibes. Oh, for sure. This is definitely much more universal than Hammer. Yes. In style. Yeah. Um, this is this is universal if Universal had like been allowed to get horny with it. You know, to a greater <laughs> na, na, degree. Na, 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 na. I mean, okay, Creature from the Black Lagoon actually does get pretty horny with it. <laughs> um, gosh, yeah, this is really difficult for me, Sarah, because this like 25 to 50 range is really interesting. <laughs> Do we really think this is better than Curse of Frankenstein at 43? Pushing and Lutterer's approach to their respective doctors mm-hmm. is surprisingly similar. Cushing brings in a bit more of the class 
but um with like the class element of like thinking you're better yes um i think he's a bit more egotistical i think what i like about curse of frankenstein is the way that you you know that frankenstein's a rat bastard whereas like as much as it was refreshing to get a mad scientist who wasn't mad who was just like no yeah i legitimately think this is a good idea i think it makes for a better movie villain to have a guy who's like just so completely amoral as baron frankenstein sure but then we're going to be looking at um another first mm. um kaltiki from bava yeah which was good but honestly i think i was more impressed with this because kaltiki's like the monster in the cave that's made out of like trash bags and stuff yet somehow yeah. looked surprisingly good. Yeah. Yeah. I actually like this better. I think this was, I think this was better. I liked, I liked this for sure better than Keltiki. And I'm, I'm okay with putting this above like the blob maybe. I don't know, man. It's hard. It's very hard. Um, this movie's much more believable than the blob though. Yeah. It's just like, are we ranking on believability? Um, <laughs> it, it seems to be definitely what we've honed in on with this particular it's, movie. It's something we like about it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think I want to stay below curse of Frankenstein on this. Yeah. Yeah. I'm happy with this spot. Okay, cool. Cool. Um, this is a good compromise. So going into the list at the new number 44, beneath Curse of Frankenstein, but above Kaltiki, is Terror is a Man, from 1959, directed by Gerardo de Leon and Eddie Romero. Which, okay, so all of my research calls them Gerardo de Leon and Eddie Romero, but in the actual movie, they're credited as Edward F. Romero and, like, Jerry de Leon, basically. Like, like which one gets a nickname and which one gets all fancy was, was switched. Yeah, but Romero is listed as a producer. Yes. You're not going to respect a producer if he's whose Eddie. credit is Eddie. Sure, sure, Whereas sure. Whereas a director, you know, you need to work with the actors. You need to be approachable. Hey, oh. Jerry the Lion. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> if you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. There you can find links to the many episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out to us over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review on one of those services. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed. You can help grow the show's audience by telling a friend about the show. Word of mouth is the best way for us to get new listeners. And if you really like what we do here, you can support the show financially by going over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the five and $10 levels get access to regular bonus content like bonus audio, uh, cut from previous episodes and patrons of all levels get to vote in our monthly polls to determine the movie for our horror adjacent bonus episode each month for the month of may uh it's going to be zombies on broadway oh wow okay yeah. and the poll for june will be up soon yes uh watch soon for the poll for june yes. on patreon.com slash scream scene podcast 
So, Ben, that was 1959. We are closing the book on 1959. What are we watching next? Yes, so we're finally into 1960, which is going to be a big year. There's just going to be a lot of major, major films in the horror genre. But the first one we're going to be watching is a British film, sort of a hammer knockoff. Uh, starring Peter Cushing. It's The Flesh and the Fiends, and it's a Birkin Hare movie. But actually, it's actually Birkin Hare instead of like just something inspired by them. Okay. Yeah. So is this like a a screwdriver horror? Like, oh, if it's a not Hammer. Horror? Mm, mm, mm. I yeah. see what you're trying to say. I see what you're trying to say. Yeah. We'll find out. We'll see you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye. Bye.